Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Texas, I spent a lot of time in Texas. So where where about, uh, uh, where are you at right now? What part of Texas are you? Well, right now, I'm actually at the Provision House, which is our ranch beef store or beef fulfillment center. So, in fact, I was going to ask you, I've got freezers over there. Is it too noisy? Can you hear the, can you hear the freezers? Do I need to go in another room? No, I can't. No, you're good. Them, but I, 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 I think I'd like to hear the sound of beef anyway, so it doesn't matter. <laughs> I like that. Over there. I, so, we were trying to find a good place, and so we've been going all over the place trying to figure out, okay, don't want to be too noisy, and I didn't want to uh, unplug them, but... So right now I'm actually at the uh, fulfillment center. The ranch, uh, we've got two ranches, uh, Zach and, and Sean. One of our ranches is 50 miles due west of, of the Metroplex. It's in Palo Pinto County. And out there, there's no, you, we don't have Wi-Fi. You're talking, so, about, you're talking about Dallas, right? Metroplex? Yeah, so, okay. So we've got two ranches. One of them is 50 miles due west of uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. Uh-huh. And then the other one that we have and we ranch on is down uh, kind of north of Big Bend. So oh, down wow. there in the okay. Trans-Pecos. So we've got, we ranch in two different areas. Yeah, that's a big difference in, in location. That's a big difference in yeah, sure, system differences too. Yeah, I lived up in Lubbock for a while. I lived in Austin. I lived around Houston, Galveston, uh, you know, so I, uh, you know, San Antonio when I was military. So I, I've been all over town. I've never spent a great deal of time up in Dallas, but I'm certainly familiar. been there quite a few times. So Yeah, well, I think I, I, I like, you know, your podcast, didn't you go to, you went to medical school in Galveston, didn't you? Yeah, Galveston. I went down to Galveston and finished a residency. Well, I went to medical school in Texas Tech and did my residency down at UTMB and out in Galveston. But uh, so I've got a lot of, a lot of partiality for Texas, spent a lot of time there. And, and as you know, and maybe our listeners, listeners don't, that Texas produces the most cattle in, in the whole country. Texas. Yeah, we've got the biggest herd. Uh, yeah, we're we're the, biggest the biggest herd right now. We're the biggest producer in the, in the nation. Well, we, you know, we really, you know, Jay Bart, we really appreciate you coming on, and uh, this is going to be this is going to be something I think is you know a little bit outside of what we we often have, but it's really good to get all these perspectives in there. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, and what you do, and 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 then I know you've you know played around with a, a, the diet that you know a meat based diet that's really helped you out from a health standpoint, which I think is also great. But more importantly, and you know, I just want to thank you ahead of time for doing what you do because I I, I just think we just don't give enough appreciation to people that feed us and particularly yeah. feed us, you know, beef, which is, you know, in my mind, the most nourishing stuff on the planet. So let's get into, you know, a little bit about your history, what you do a little bit about the ranch. And, and then I want to talk to you about, I'm sure you're, you're maybe being aware of, of these worldwide global recommendations that we're supposed to eat an eighth of an ounce of beef a day. I mean, which is, you know, I mean, it's just <laughs> it's this insanity, you know, at the same time they're telling us to eat, 600 calories worth of sugar and, and uh, processed seed oils and, and an eighth of an ounce of beef. It's not even 15 calories, man. So uh, I'm sure that's got to dry, spin your head around. It doesn't mind, but, but let's get a little of your background first and then we can, then we can kind of rant and rave. Sure. Yeah. Well, in the state of Texas, you know, there's everybody seems in the state of Texas to be either employed by the oil and gas business 
or the, the ranching business. I mean, there's a, that's big employee on, on both of them. I've been ranching, uh, Sean and Zach, for about 18 years, a little bit under 20 years I've been ranching. I'm not one of these guys that's been ranching four or five generations, but uh, always wanted to do it. I grew up wanting to do it. I've got a little bit of family history in doing it. Uh, my dad was in the food business. My grandparents were farmers. And so uh, ended up start start buying my ranching property right around 1999, 2000, uh, 2000 and started adding to it. And I started out, Sean, with just a cow-calf operation. And by that, I mean what I did is I, uh, I had some heifers and some bulls, and I would calve in the spring, and then I would sell my cattle, my, my yearlings, uh, in the fall to either uh, either a cattle company or an auction, something like that. And so right now we, we do ranch in two areas. Uh, we ranch in Palo Pinto County. And to give you an idea, Palo Pinto has a population of about 25,000 people. And uh, the county is a thousand square miles. So we're in the middle of no nowhere out there. In fact, the, the, the town we're closest to is a little town called Lone Camp, Texas, population 78. And uh, not a lot of good Wi-Fi out there, but that's our ranch out there. We own and control 1,400 acres in Palo Pinto. And when I say own and control, we own about 1,000, and we lease an additional 400 acres there. Uh, in addition, we also ranch down in Pecos County in the Trans-Pecos, which is north of the Big Bend National Park. Down there, we own and control about 9,000 acres. So total under control and ownership of our family, uh, we've got a little over 10,000 acres. And... Uh, what we do is we run a Black Angus, Black Angus Cross. We've got a few Hereford and we've got some Beefmaster cattle. And we look at trying to get the hybrid vigor from all these different cattle to create the best possible uh, cattle herd. On top of that, we're a little bit different, Sean, is the fact that we also have our own beef company. So most cattlemen, what we do is we take the cattle we sell them to somebody else. It's a cow-calf operation. Well, what we do is we keep our cattle on grass from the time we wean them till we slaughter them. And so they're ours the whole time. We contract with processors, and I've used three different processors here in the state, and I will take, deliver my cattle to the processor. I'm real particular about what I want to the cattle and when they slaughter them. And then we own the cattle through the slaughter process. Then after it's been slaughtered, the, the meat's been aged, we pick the meat up and we specify how we want that meat cut. Then once we get that meat, then we bring it back to Dallas. And from here, we use it and fulfill a lot of different orders. And our beef company, uh, we sell to individuals. We also sell to grocery stores. Uh, we, we sell to co-ops. Uh, we do ship and we do a lot of deliveries here in the Metroplex. And we also actually have a program. You'd mentioned something about uh, Austin and Houston, Galveston area, we also have two programs down there. We actually tip a cow down in the Houston area. Once we get enough people making orders, we will deliver orders down the Houston, Galveston area. We do the same thing for Austin. So uh, that's kind of our, our deal. I am certified grass-fed, grass-finished by the USDA. I went through that certification process. Uh, they're kind of winding down that process, but I am still certified through them. I'm also certified through something that uh, Dr. Sarah Place was on your program and she had mentioned, I'm certified through the Beef Quality Assurance Program. And I, uh, that's a federal program, but run by individual states. 
and I'm kind of anal. So what I did on that is I went, I'm certified actually in the state of Texas and in the state of Oklahoma. And it's just a good program in regards to sustainability and how we move forward trying to make the best beef product for consumers. So uh, that's a little bit of my background. I am, uh, I do have a finance degree background. I have attended the TCU Ranch Management Program uh, and have also taken some animal husbandry classes on top of just out there doing what I do. Let me ask you, you know, we, we see a lot of times how, you know, raising cattle, you know, is, is you know, inhumane. It's torture to the animals. Uh, you know, you know, at what point are you sticking these animals in little boxes and kicking them and beating them? I mean, when, when does that come into the, when it come to the program? I mean, can we, can we just talk about what is a lot, what is, what is, what is life like on a, on a ranch for, for a calf what can, from, from birth to, to slaughter? What do, what do they experience? Are they, are these animals, you know, being mistreated somehow? I mean, and, and how do you feel about that when people would talk about that? Because I think there's this huge misconception of people that have never even set foot outside of a city Telling, telling us, you know, what's going on on a cattle ranch. Can you, can you give us a little flavor for what, what happens from, from actually somebody who actually is there and, and does this every day? Yeah, Sean, uh, let me tell you this. Calves on a ranch, it's like they've gone to heaven. It is the best thing in the world. Our, we calve in the spring, and we treat all of our animals like show animals. Uh, I love my animals. And so what we do is we calve in the spring. We usually, when they're about 60-day-old, Sean, we work the cat, we work them. And from there, what we do is we would castrate our bulls, uh, we worm them, we give them vaccination, we ear tag them, and we may possibly brand them. And again, we do all that for identification purposes. Even though a lot of people don't think it's possible, there's still a lot of cattle rustling going on. And in fact, you can steal a cow and make more money off the stealing a cow than you can on selling computer uh, a computer. So we do do that. Our cattle are treated like show animals. And so what we do is they're on pasture the whole time. We never confine any of our animals, Sean. And even, even feedlot cattle are treated well. And I, I'm just going to put that out there. I, I've made the decision to do grass-fed, grass-finished. My cows are on grass the whole time. But even a feedlot cattle, uh, they're on grass probably 80% of their lives. And then you do kind of put them in a pen. But in regards to us, uh, our cattle are out there on the Oak Savannah. Uh, I have a, what we did is we made the decision to go out there and really reseed our ranch with native Texas grasses. So my cattle graze out on like a big blue, a little blue, a side oats grama, a switchgrass and the Indian grass. And these are all five native grasses of the big grass and ecosystem. On top of that, we may supplement them with, uh, with some hybrid grasses, uh, maybe a winter wheat grass before it grains out, uh, as well as a Sudan. So our cows at all times are just grazing out. They're never confined. Uh, in fact, they don't even like us to come to get too close to them. I mean, they're just out there in the field. We have plenty of water tanks. They're drinking fresh water. It is a great life. And then again, they're, they're, for a grass-fed, grass-fed operation, they're on grass until they're about 22 to 26 months. Yeah, it seems like um, when, depending on where you look for your resources, it's, uh, you know, it's becoming more and more, I think, prevalent with internet and stuff where people want to just kind of fast forward to the part where we, where, where they're slaughtered and they bypass the, the months and months that they spend on, on passion. Like you said, we, we had Frank McLoner on the show and he, He's, he's 
said a few times that, uh, you know, 80% of the U.S. cattle herd is actually on grass, regardless of whether it's going to end up in a, in a feedlot someday or not. And, and obviously that's different than yours. Yours is the whole time. But um, yeah, I think people sometimes forget that and they forget what the alternative for, for a ruminant would be outside of um, domestication. And it's, it's, it's hard to imagine a scenario in which the majority of ruminants would, would live a life that would involve very little stress from the standpoint of having to worry about being hunted on a regular basis, worrying about finding, you know, quality grasses and moving to find those, the water and all that stuff. It's like, you know, it, it's, it doesn't sound like that bad of a setup. No, uh, Zach, it's a great setup. And, and Frank is exactly right. Whether the cow is grass fed, grass finished, like my operation, or more of a feedlot, they're on grass the majority of their time. It is a, a great, wonderful life. And even when they do go to feedlot, uh, these cows are well taken care of. The cowboys go into those pens, they look at them all the time. It's just a di different feeding operation. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of times it's something that, uh, that Sean kind of hit on in regards to uh, there's a movement, this global movement, uh, vegans and whatnot, we get a lot of pushback from them and they immediately focus in on not only the slaughter part of it. And we're real particular about how our animals are treated, even up to the slaughter. And what I mean by that is, I know each of these slaughterhouses, they're, they're, uh, they're individually owned by families that are USDA inspected. And what our deal is there is when we take our cows to the processor, our cows are slaughtered right then. Our cows, no matter what you do, they're, they're kind of trying to figure out what's going on. It is a, it is a humane, a real quick process. And uh, so these cows are treated well the whole time. And if indeed these animals were out in the wild, uh, let me tell you this, every now and then we will have a cow that, that gets attacked. Uh, and it's not a real pretty process. We don't have a lot of natural predators here, but uh, you know, if a ruminant is out there and he does get attacked by either a mountain lion, if you go further south or a New Mexico or a wolf or whatnot, it's not a good deal. I've even had a couple of mama cows that go down for when they have a calf, and I've gotten some of these Mexican buzzards on them, and they'll pack, they'll pack them out and kill the calf. And so it's not a real good process if a ruminant is out there. It's better if they're actually livestock. Yeah, I mean, it's because I, I looked into some of this stuff, and I, you know, if you look at things like white-tailed deer, I mean, something like 50% of the deer don't even make it to 12 months. And the vast majority of them get picked off by, you know, by, by the natural predators. And so, you know, you compare that to beef cattle. And my, my understanding is about in the U.S., something like 96% of beef cattle make it past weaning. And so we've got a tremendous rate of, of getting these animals that would be otherwise slaughtered as babies to making it to maturity and adulthood and, and having that, you know, generally good quality of life, you know, knowing at the end of the day that they're going to end up ultimately on our plate as food. Uh, yeah. But but at the same point, this isn't some inhumane, awful operation that we're being told it is, particularly when it comes to cattle. Now, again, I would concede that things like chickens and some of these other animals maybe have a little worse than cows do. And that's one of the reasons I, you know, I tend to eat mostly beef for that reason. Uh, you know, but, but not, not only the fact that it's more nutrition, tastes better, and I enjoy it more. But I think, you know, we have to really uh, realize there's a lot of nuance to this discussion when it comes to ethics. And, and you know, the thing about the feedlots, you know, you know, I've been on the feedlots and those animals aren't crammed in there. They, they get by, by law. I think they're allowed something like 200 square foot per animal. 
and they don't even use it all because they're herd animals. They cluster together naturally because they're trying to avoid predation. You know, if, yep. you go to the, if you go to the savannas of Africa and you look at all the wildebeest, they pack in next to each other so they can spot predators. So, so it's not, you know, you get these pictures of an animal in a feedlot and they're, they're, they're together. That's because they want to be there. They've got more room than, they're, than they even ever use. So I think this, we've got this tremendous amount of, you know, propaganda out there. And unfortunately, you know, unfortunately, you know, we try to use facts and rationality in a, but I think you have to fight fire with fire and, 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 you know, get out your own damn propaganda and say, look, you know, there's got to be a simple message that people can understand this stuff because no one's going out to your ranch to visit to check up on this stuff. And I wish more people would do that. So having you on here to explain this stuff, hopefully will will help some, some of this stuff out. Hey, Sean, can I say one thing on that is, you know, uh, there is a lot of propaganda out there. And, and I know a lot of people really attack you. A lot of these vegans do. I've, I've seen some of the, the stuff on social media and it's ridiculous. And they send me to these pictures, these ridiculous slaughterhouse pictures. I've used three slaughterhouses. I have never seen anything in regards to what they keep putting out there. And the, uh, it's just pure propaganda. In the United States, that may not happen. I don't know where they're getting those photos. They're probably in some undeveloped country. But that is not our reality, on whether you're grass-fed, grass-finished, or a capo or feedlot operator. Yeah, it's absolutely true. I mean, they may show some, you know, like I said, some third world country where they just, you know, they don't know better. And, they, you know, they, they just, this is the other thing, you know, when they talk about greenhouse gas emissions, they say, well, there's, there's you know, X amount of 14% of the world greenhouse gas emissions on a life cycle basis come from animal agriculture. You know, whether that's true, you know, likely that's probably, you know, a reasonable estimate, but at the same time, 80% of that comes from undeveloped third world countries who don't know how to breed their cattle. They don't know how to manage them correctly. And that's the issue. It's not the cattle themselves. It's how we manage them. It's how we take care of them. And if we could just bring the rest of the world up to even 1960s level of management, we would tremendously mitigate the small amount of, you know, greenhouse gases that we, that we put out there. I mean, it's, it's, and it, and it pales in comparison to, energy sector, fossil fuel sector. It's such a ridiculous that we scapegoat this stuff for ideologic reasons. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, Frank brought this up in the episode he had with you guys is, of course, cows put out methane. And methane has, a, I think, a, a life of only 10 years. So it does break down versus the other greenhouse gases don't. They've got like a thousand year life. So they do break down. And what I think is really neat is uh, I just got the sustainability report from the United States. And in there, we've actually dropped our greenhouse gas emissions, particularly from livestock, because what we've done is the herd, the, the herd has gone down, but we're creating more beef. So in essence, our greenhouse gas reduction, I think it's 17 or 20% reduction. So we're actually producing less greenhouse gases. We're, we're, we're becoming more sustainable. And so, uh, yeah, the United States is, is leading the pack in regards to uh, this whole concept. And the biggest thing is, again, we're talking methane. We're not talking emissions from fossil fuels. Yeah, you know, that's always been uh, kind of one thing that I've always found interesting about uh, just this, the whole conversation in general is it seems like there's a big 800-pound gorilla in the room, and that's transportation in terms of what's kind of causing some of this stuff or the, the main culprit. And it seems like we keep looking to scapegoat away from that or move away from that and try to put something else up on, uh, on the top of the pedestal to blame. And, and right now it seems like that is, is the cattle industry. 
Yeah, it really is. And, you know, uh, something that we're trying to do, and I think all ranchers are, we're all trying to become more sustainable. And with that, we're trying to reduce our inputs in all of our operations. And when I say that, even we're trying to use less transportation, less uh, emissions from our, from our ranch vehicles. And so what we're trying to do is we're, we're, you know, it's a thin margin business. So what we're trying to do is less inputs we put, but makes all of our ranches more sustainable. And when I, when I say that is if I can haul my cattle to market and I do a better job, maybe I haul, haul 10 of them at one time versus two, well, that reduces more emissions than I would ever do in regards to my cattle. And, you know, there's a whole big science right now coming in that actually ruminants sequester uh, carbon back into the soil, help with that whole process. So, uh, yeah, this, this huge gorilla in the room that nobody wants to talk about is the fossil fuels. And all these global elitists, they're out there flying all over the place. They're, they're not even mentioned. All they do is they focus immediately on ruminants. And ruminants are probably the best upcycler of any uh, livestock around. We, we, we actually do a better job of upcycling than anybody else. Jay, why, this is, I guess, the beef I have with beef is that, you know, you've got National Cattlemen's Board, you know, gets all this beef checkup money, and, and I, I just don't see them pushing it. I mean, I think they should be out there, you know, you know pounding the pavement 24-7 saying, look, it's absolutely insanity to, 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 to allow us to think we're going to go on this soy, soybean, sugar, uh, you know, refined grain future. And I mean, you've got, you guys are sitting on a gold mine of nutrition. And the fact that, you know, organizations like those guys are not out there heavily promoting that stuff to me is, I, I don't understand it. You know, I mean, you know, you know, they, they've got every cattle that changes hands in the U.S. gives them a dollar. And there's a, we got a herd of 93 million of cattle. So that they get, they got to have enough money to run some decent ads out there. And, I, and what's going on there and why, why are we not seeing more from the beef industry, you know, doing this and not trying to counter this stuff? Is there, can you, can you speak to that or do you have any idea? Yeah, I do a little bit and I can't, I don't, I don't know all their inner workings. I know they do have this process and we all pay a little bit of feed to it. Um, but you know, when you try to get a whole industry, we've got so many stakeholders, so many different cattlemen and we've all got an idea of what everybody should be doing. And uh, they're just a little slow in making that. For the longest time, we didn't feel like we needed to advertise. And so all of a sudden now we're going, you know what? All this propaganda is just, has vilified ruminant meat. And so all of a sudden we're trying to figure out what's the best approach with that. And uh, they've spent a lot of money in regards to supporting the, the, the Beef Quality Assurance Program, but they need to really be doing some just pure social media media marketing. And I think you're going to see that over the next five years. Uh, we're, we're starting to get some good data that we can use then to say, hey, this is part of the story. And I think you're going to see that. But I agree with you. I don't think we've done a real good job of advertising. It's like, well, let's don't say anything. There's no, read for, no reason for us to. And we just get inundated with this negative propaganda that's just not right. It's time to bring back the beef. It's what's for dinner's commercials, I think. I love those old commercials. You remember that? Yeah. Where's the beef and all that? Those are great commercials. And yeah, where's where's old uh, Sam Elliott at, man? I gave that dude had it, man. But um, let, let's let's switch gears a little bit uh, because you personally, you know, went on it. You know, a meat based diet. Uh, you know, and you're probably in the best position in the world to do that, living on a damn cattle ranch. 
uh, and having access to all the meat I want. That's kind of my dream there. But, but tell us a little bit about your personal health journey because I think this is a, this is a neat little story as well. Yeah, and uh, thanks for asking about that. I have been a uh, probably you know it's one of those deals when I, my my wife and I got married when we were twenty three, so I've been married forty years. And when we married, she was surprised that I had a dermatologist. She was going, what do you have a dermatologist for? I have always had certain skin issues. And they weren't bad in my 20s, but, you know, I was like some psoriasis, a little bit of eczema. Wasn't bad. But over the next two decades, uh, these little issues got worse and worse. And I ended up, I'd have one dermatologist and I'd get another one. I've had every, I've, I've probably used every type of prescription uh, steroid ointment, salve, and lotion on my skin. And sometimes my uh, situation would get so bad, bad it was hard to really walk, particularly the blisters on my feet. Um, on top of that, you know, the older I got, I gained some weight. Uh, and then, you know, got the heartburn. After some time, probably when I was in my 50s, I'd have bad heartburn. But when I turned about 40, Sean, I started feeling so bad. I mean, I felt so bad that I called my doctor and I said, hey, look, I need to have an appointment. Went in there and I said, doctor, if this is how 40 feels, I feel so bad, I'll never make it to 60. I feel terrible. So he said, well, let's do a, a battery of tests. And so he sent me through a battery of test physicals and all that. And he called me a couple of days later. He said, Bart, I've got good news and bad news for you. He said, uh, the bad news is you definitely have an autoimmune disease. He said, the good news is of all, all of the autoimmune diseases, this is probably the easiest one to treat. You have hypothyroidism. He said, your thyroid is giving out and we need to give you some hormone to get it back in balance. It's still producing some, but you need to take some hormone daily. And, uh, and so I started that process. And so I've been a 20-year hypothyroid uh, patient. I take a, a, a dosage every day of a, additional hormone. So anyway, Sean had all these things going on. My skin kept getting worse, my psoriasis, scalp psoriasis. I probably went 15 years where I wouldn't work a dark, uh, dark shirt like you've got on right there. Uh, I just have unbelievable amount of scales and, and stuff on my shirt from my eyebrows, my scalp, anything else. Uh, my feet and hands would have constant blisters. Sometimes I'd have to hide them couldn't do anything with it, couldn't work. Um, so through this process, never had any doctor, nobody said anything about it. And Marty and I started this process uh, a lot of times from people that we were reading. When I started getting more and more into the hypothyroid, how to treat it, I started trying to do a pushback on carbs. So I started doing more and more pushback on carbs and started linking social media to people like you and uh, went more and more, started going to a low-carb, high-fat diet. And the more I went on that, Sean, the better my symptoms got. All of a sudden, my blisters went away. I wasn't having to get so much uh, prescription sad. wasn't having to go in and having these ultraviolet treatment with my dermatologist. I was being able to do a little bit of a pushback. Kept on doing that, and I eventually went from uh, a low-carb, high-fat to more of leaning, more carnivore. And it was hard to give up those carbs. I'm, I'm, I'm a carb addict. I love the carbs. But the more I gave them away, the more I pushed a true meat. And like you said, I've got the meat right here. I am a, I'm a rancher. The better I felt. And Sean, right now, I am probably about a 95, probably a 98. My wife and I are both 
98% carnivore. When I mean that, I'm doing ruminant meat, wild caught fish. I do a little bit of eggs, a little bit of cheese, and may use a spice or two, but that's about it. But right now I'm down to, uh, you know, I'm six foot tail, weigh about 190 pounds. Max I've gotten up to is about 230. Uh, my skin issues, they're not cured, but they're in remission. I know the, the monster's right under my skin. And when I go back to carbs, Sean, it bubbles out. I have a flare-up. It's just not fun at all. So I'm better off being on this meat diet. And, uh, and with that, you know, push, did a pushback on all seed oils, vegetable oils. And on top of that, my doctor was really am amazed. Through my hypothyroid, for 20 years, my medication just kept increasing. Started, I think, at 75 milligrams a day, micrograms a day. Got 112, 125, up to 137. I was up to 137 dosage a day for probably eight years. Once I started doing this, he said, man, you're out of the range. I've never seen this. And so I was able to where my thyroid is still not right. It flickers. But now I've got my dosage down for the first time ever, back down to 112. And anybody with thyroid knows that, man, it's a fatiguing situation. And it makes weight loss, everything else, extremely hard. So, uh, yeah, that's my story. That, that is my health story. I'm a confirmed uh, carnivore, uh, low-carb, high-fat. I will never go back to the misery I lived for decades in what I was in. Jake, quick question. When you kind of started making some of those dietary interventions and went back to the doctor, was the doctor pretty receptive of the changes you made? And were they willing to look at the results and be like, keep doing what you're doing? Or did you get any pushback as to like that it was dangerous to be following a carnivore diet? You know, good question, Zach. Uh, uh, I, the, the, my main doctor who I've had for a while, he said, well, I think it's due to your weight loss. Hmm. And wouldn't really acknowledge my what I was eating the type of diet he kept saying well I think it I think these are improvements I think your weight loss is helping but uh, I, you know I, I he's, he's becoming a lot more receptive um, it's one of those deals now my dermatologist and he doesn't he's not putting it together diet to whatnot he wants to keep me on all these medications my internist is a little more receptive to it he said well you need to keep on what you're doing but you need to be careful with your diet they all seem to, you know, concern that I'm eating too much meat. But uh, all I know this is I'm feeling better. My lipid panels are a lot better. You know, I, was, I, I never had extremely bad lipid panels, but I know this, my ACLs have gone up, which is a good thing. My LCLs haven't dropped, and my overall triglycerides have dropped in half. So all these panels, they, they like them. They're not saying, oh, man, that's great. Go, that, your carnivore is great. <laughs> It's like they hear it, but they don't want to quite acknowledge it. You know what I mean? So, uh, but in the, the, well, it's the weight gain or weight loss. Your weight loss is. So, uh, but I'm real anxious. I do my physical every year, Zach, in, in uh, the 1st of March. And can't wait to go back and, and have this little discussion again with my doctor. It'll be kind of fun. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, if if you put your numbers into a into, into a comprehensive risk calculator, you, you know, your your risk for cardiovascular disease has obviously gone down now at this point, which is, you know, you know, not 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 discounting the fact that the weight loss also helps with with regard to that risk. So that's interesting. Let me let me go back to you know, you made the decision to go all grass with your animals. Yeah. And can you talk about what compelled you to do that? 
And can you talk about, because uh, one of the, one of the sort of the, the criticisms that we see, you know, within the ranch community, the people who decided not to do it, they said, well, you can't be as efficient. You can't produce as much meat. And, you know, and when we're talking about how do we feed the world and there's people saying, you know, you know, it's, you know, the grass space is going to make more methane emissions versus grain is going to make less. And, you know, there's, there's, you know, what's better, what's worse. How did you sort of make that decision in your mind and talk to me about, you know, I know there's guys like Alan Savory, Joel Salatin and others that are in the community talk about the regenerative agriculture. And how does that work in your situation? Do you, do you do this mob grazing type of thing? Uh, Is that part of your, is that part of your pastoring process or what do you feel about that sort of stuff? Sure. Yeah. So uh, kind of looping back to that, we did cow-calf for probably my first 12 years I was doing cow-calf, traditional ranch. And uh, kind of looping into both of you, I've got one of my son is a pretty good athlete and he was a triathlete going over, uh, uh, was over in Europe. And so he was over there in that circuit doing that stuff. And he kept looping it back saying, Dad, you need to look at this grass-fed, grass-finished. You need to really consider doing this. We're seeing more and more of this over in Europe. And so started investigating it, decided, hey, let's look at this. And uh, I've, always, I've always liked the whole concept that uh, ruminants should be on grass. I think they should be on grass the whole time. Can we make that work? The issue become is, is it economical? And, you know, anything about sustainability has to really pass the lens of environmental, social, and economic. Can I make this economic? And so I started doing some research on it after, you know, having one of my sons saying, hey, did y'all really look at doing this? Can we convert the ranch to a grass-fed, grass-finished? So I started looking at that in the grass-fed, I think back in 2006, the grass-fed, grass-finished cattle in the United States was, was only about a $17 million market. But consumers were saying they wanted that. They wanted kind of that New Zealand, Argentina type beef. So in 2012, it was about $300 million. So that part of the, the beef business seems to really be growing. So we decided, hey, let's go on and make that conversion. Let's slowly start doing it. And I worked with a couple of different uh, uh, state and uh, local and federal agencies to help me convert the ranch. And with that, I had to take out some mesquite trees. I had to take out some uh, salt cedar. And I started broadcasting my native Texas grasses. And it was a slow process. Uh, that process has been one where it, at some point it became a passion to where I really like doing this. I like the taste of the beef. I feel like it's better for me and my family. Uh, the hardest part on that is if I did this grass bed, like you, you'd mentioned, a lot of cattlemen are doing a little bit of a pushback on that. Uh, there's the whole concept that if you are in a feedlot, you actually produce less greenhouse gas, gas, uh, gases than uh, a grass-fed grass finish. But I think there's other things that are positive on it. Well, the issue became is once we started doing the grass-fed grass finish, we realized that we can get a premium for our meat. So a premium more than if I did it the other way. The only thing I had to do is I had to go start making the direct sales. I, if, if I had a grass-fed, grass-finished, and I sold it to my normal, normal uh, sales channels, uh, the auction, I didn't get a premium. But if I sold it direct, then I could capture part of that premium. If I started selling it direct to consumers, direct to grocery stores, I started getting a lot of people saying, Bart, I'll buy that from you. 
And so I started getting a premium. And so this has been a process, and we think we're, you know, we're, we're at the point to where we're getting close to being an economical endeavor for us. And we're seeing, Sean, we're seeing a lot of growth in it. We just see a lot of people specifically wanting this for a lot of different reasons. It's not, you know, they may be animal welfare. We're seeing a lot of the medical community and just a lot of the CrossFit people. A lot of CrossFit people want the grass-fed, grass-finished beef. Yeah, I think, uh, I think it's an interesting topic. And I think that the more we find out about it, the more it's a knowledge is power sort of thing. And I mean, I can, I can definitely sympathize for the rancher who has a more traditional setup wanting to maybe explore that arena, but just trying to find the time and energy to do it when they're trying to keep everything else going. You know, it's not something, it's not like they can take two years and you know, not, not get paid to kind of like make a big transformation. So um, hopefully I, with the market share of that growing and, you know, other resources being kind of put out there, folks can have the opportunity to make a decision if they want to stay the, stay the way they're going or realistically move into a setup like kind of like you have. Yeah, you know, Zach, one thing there, looping back into what Zach said, I think consumers want choices. Mm-hmm. So whether it's convention or grass-fed, what we're seeing is consumers want choices. And look, all consumers have a price point. And, you know, everybody's got that price point they're working with in regards to their budget. But I think all consumers, consumers want transparency. They want to know about their beef. And they go back and forth. We have a lot of customers going, you know, I, right now I've got to buy some uh, conventional ground meat. But, Bart, I'm going to buy your steaks. So consumers definitely want a choice and that's good. So the more choices consumer have, it's a better deal for everybody. Yeah. I think that, you know, going forward, you know, there, and I, and I, and I've sensed this talking to other ranchers, there is a little bit of, I don't know if I want to call it mistrust or there, there's a little bit of friction between the big processing companies. You know, there's, there's like what four major beef processors, you know, nationally, they kind of control the vast majority of our beef supply and, and, and a little rancher, you know, we got to realize that something like 93% of all ranches in the U.S. are just mom and pop, small head of cattle. I mean, it's 50 cattle or less. And most people don't realize this stuff. And I think there's more and more people out there that want to hook up directly with the ranchers because, you know, I, th- I think, you know, you you have more control of the product you're getting. You know, you've got – it's just – I think this is a better relationship. And I think and – I, and I fully support that. And, and one of the things – I know we're doing this World Carnivore Month, and for those that don't know, you know, Bart's company, you know, the, the 2S Ranch is, 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 is supporting that with a little discount for, for people that are participating this month. And so, you know, again, that's wonderful. But I think, you know, going forward, the more people that can, can kind of get in contact, and, you know, through companies like CrowdCow and, you know, stuff like that, or, or you know, even ButcherBox, who, who actually sponsors the show from, from time to time, we're getting more of this direct to consumer, direct from ranch and cutting out the, the Tyson foods and the Cargills and stuff like that, that may not necessarily have our best interest at heart, you know, considering the fact that like they're starting to invest in these fake meat stuff. This Tyson foods has, has got, has got st- stake in some of the fake meat and the soon to be synthetic meat down the road. And that's concerning to me as, as a consumer. And, and I, and I really do think that having a relationship with guys like you it's probably the best thing people can do. And hopefully more, more guys like you will do direct to direct to sale, direct to consumer sales and do your own slaughtering and, and, and that sort of stuff. Uh, you, Sean, you're exactly right. What, you know, back in 2015, the United States Congress repealed the country of origin label law on meats. And before that you could go 
get any meat and you could see what country it was from. Well, these four big guys that you were talking about, that everybody, everybody in the cattle industry said, hey, we don't, we wanna, we wanna keep that country of origin, but behind the scenes, the big processors were saying, no, 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 we want that gone because what they could do is they could bring in uh, Mexican and Canadian beef cheaper and process it, make more margin. And so what we're seeing is since then, I think that's really helped my business and a lot of other guys like me, Butcher Box with the, that you said that brings their, I think, grass-fed grass-fed in from Australia. People want to know where their meat comes from. They want to know exactly where it comes from. I don't want to know that it was some processor. I want to know. I want to talk to the rancher. I want to know it's from Australian grass-fed or whatever. But when you get these big processors, you don't know. And so right after the that was passed, it was December of 2015 when the the law was repealed. Man, Sean, we started getting more people saying, hey, Bart, I want to buy from you because I know it's from your ranch. And what mm -hmm. we had to do is I had to petition the USDA a market claim to be able to put that my market claim that my, my beef was from Palo Pinto County and that grass-fed, grass-finished, it's raised in Texas. Those are all market claims that I had to do. And my consumers want that. You know, I may have some consumers that concern about uh, – the animal welfare, other ones want grass-fed, grass-finished. I've got some consumers that go, I don't care if it's grass-fed, grass-finished. I just want to know I'm buying from the rancher. And so mm -hmm. that is a huge point you, you just brought up right there. And it's an important one. I think you can see more and more ranchers try this. Yeah, I remember actually a few years ago um, when I was living out in California, I can't remember what it was. Some, it was one of the, a company that made like different like ancient grains. They'd have like this little, like they're, they're, their MO was like, you can source where we got this from all the way down to the field and the farmer and actually a little barcode on it. You could scan it and it would tell you about the family operation. It would tell you everything like you'd want to know about where that bag of um, millet or whatever came from. And I thought that was a cool idea. And I mean, if, if they had that like on your, on like uh, the ground beef or steak that you buy, I think that'd be pretty cool to be able to see, oh, this animal came from this specific ranch. Uh, and then if you really want to know how things go along the lifespan of that, that specific animal, you could even go out there and, and check a place out and see like what the day-to-day -day operation looks like for yourself. What the, you have to, I may have to steal that idea from you. I love that idea. I think that's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> now for a word from our sponsors. Hey folks, thank you for tuning in to the Human Performance Outliers podcast. Uh, we are very excited to have ButcherBox sponsoring the show. Sean, why don't you tell us about some of your experiences? Yeah, I mean, I've been, you know, basically mostly just going with their custom boxes. I've been going with uh, ribeyes and uh, New York strip steaks. They're all uh, grass-finished, antibiotic-free, hormone-free. They're actually pretty decently marbled for a grass-finished product. I've been enjoying it. Lately, I've been throwing it on the on the uh, in the sous vide and then reverse searing or then searing it up in a cast iron pan. That's been pretty darn tasty. I've enjoyed it. Uh, the consistency I found on pretty much every single steak has been very high, very good and very high. Uh, flavor's been good, and I really enjoyed it. I think uh, you know looking around at some of the other competitors and some of the other grass finished products that you might get in the store this is actually a fair bit more economical. And so I think it's a, it's a good value, good quality, and, and, and a very, uh, you know, enjoyable, flavorful uh, way to get your steaks. Awesome. Thanks, Sean. Remember, to get your discount and free bacon, type in promo code HPO at the checkout. Now, back to the show.
What a, you know, just, just back to this country of origin labeling, you know, the so-called cool law, the COOL, country of origin labeling, uh, you know, when it was repealed, you know, and, and so one of the concerns that, that people are worrying about the environmental impact of meat is, you know, they're talking about, well, it's destroying the rainforest down in Brazil. And, and that is happening. Uh, you know, fortunately in the U.S., very little of our, our beef comes from Brazil. It's like zero, it's like half a percent of our imports come from Brazil. So it's not really an issue in the United States. But for people that are really, you know, concerned about that, you know, having this country of origin labeling would sort of eliminate those type issues. You can say, I don't want to buy beef from, beef from Brazil. We look at the United States and we look at the forest cover in the United States. It's gone up. We've grown more forests in the United States over the last hundred years. And so people are talking about deforestation. Yes, that's an issue in Indonesia. Yes, that's an issue. And that's palm oil, by the way, or Malaysia, wherever, you know, wherever that's happening. And that's probably the biggest force, source of deforestation. But the issues that are going on uniquely in Brazil due to some of the corrupt policies down there and some of the other things, is not strictly for cattle ranching operations. Uh, but to, to, to get around that stuff, knowing that you're buying U.S. beef, yeah. Canadian beef or whatever, or Australian beef or, or, or you know, U.K. beef, New Zealand beef, whatever, or lamb or whatever. That is how we, we help to do this stuff. If you want to really be an environmental steward and realizing that, that operations like you are doing are restoring the sto- soil or restoring the ecosystem, this is what we need more of. And, you know, having that information is, is you know, part of the puzzle and not just saying we're going to throw out all cattle in the world, throw the, throw the baby out with the bathwater because it's, it's, just, it's just absolutely crazy. I really, Sean, I really want you and Zach to come out to the ranch. If y'all came out to the ranch and, and went up on some of the oak savannas, we, we've got so many different uh, plant and animal diversity. You can go out on our ranch and you'll see the cattle. You may see some deer, some wild turkey. Uh, you'll see all sorts of little animals. You'll see the monarch butterflies. The, the diverse, diversity is unbelievable. And what we're doing there is we're trying to restore the, the whole, you know, we're part of the great, grassland ecosystem the great grassland ecosystem in america now we've done a lot to it it's the second largest contiguous ecosystem in the world behind the black forest and what we're trying to do at our ranch is we're just trying to restore part of it because as we do is i make part of my ranch restore that back to the grasslands my soils everything does so much better my water uh, everything out there at the ranch looks so much better. And so that's our mission out there. And, and what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make my ranch as sustainable as it is. And not just me, all the other ranchers are too. It's a process. It's kind of like a journey. And I think Zach in one of his talks, he mentioned about it's just not the race he likes, but the process getting to that race. And part of the fun for all these ranchers are we're trying to change our, you know, we're doing the process too. We're, we're trying to put in less inputs and as we do that, our ranches all become more sustainable. And that's a great thing. Hey, Bart, let's talk about, uh, let's talk about a, a 34% tax on red meat, which is being bandied about, would do to, to your business. What would, what would that do to guys like you that are trying to do the right thing? And, and how, how, why, why, why is that a, a bad idea? It's a terrible idea, Sean. What it does is all you're going to do is you're going to kill every small rancher. And you you'd said earlier, and you're so right, most of the cattle come from small ranch operations. Most ranch operations are probably about 50 to maybe 70 cattle per small ranch. So if you put in a 34% uh, tax 
on, on red meat, what you will basically do is uh, you're going to get it all where it's only going to be controlled and owned by the big boys. You will devastate all the small ranchers. The, the, what happens is those guys are the ones that are more vulnerable to when you tax, you hurt those guys. And you're going to see more and more cattle ranchers say, I can't handle it. I got to sell my, my land that's been in my family for five generations. I can't do this anymore because the consumer, what the, what will happen is you put that 34% tax on that. The it's either got to, the consumer's got to be willing to pay it or the rancher's got to absorb it. And the rancher said, I can't do that. And, and the guy that's doing the 50 cattle, he definitely has no margin. The, the, the consumer he's sitting there operating within his price point. He goes, I, I can't do that. And so what happens is you will devastate the, the small ranch business. It will be a defining moment for not just in the United States. I think they're really pushing that over in Europe. If they do that, you're going to kill all the small ranchers. You're going to kill this whole industry where you're actually getting a guy that you can go buy and buy your, your, your uh, beef straight from a rancher and identify it. That, those days will be gone. And that's why I just don't understand it when I keep hearing about that ridiculous 34% tax that's being pushed by uh, a lot of the globalists. I don't understand it. They will totally kill all ruminant uh, uh, small ranches. I mean, not to be too conspiratorial, but do you think some of these big companies might just be behind, behind the scenes saying, hey, we'll support that so all the, all the business goes our way? I mean, is that, is that, a, is that a thought you might have? Betcha. I think, you know, it's like anything else when you're, you know, and I, it's one of those deals, those guys out of one side of their mouth going, we don't like that. We don't want, we don't want to tax on beef, but they also know, boy, I'm a, I'm going to kill. All the small guys. So on one side to the national agencies and the organizations, we don't want that. But behind the scenes, they could be actually uh, supporting it uh, in a lot of different ways. And I think that's what happened, particularly on the cool program. So I think a lot of the big processors actually out of one side of the mouth, go, we don't want that law repealed, but they also were glad that it was repealed. Same thing will happen on this tax. And uh, so, yeah, that's a real hacker. Uh, I, I'm just really sensitized to that. And I've got a lot of buddies out there that we're all going, man, what does this can do to our business? And uh, how, do, how do we consolidate even more? And some guys right now are barely making it. Ranching's not a, ranching in, you know, if you look at the average salary in the two counties I, uh, I ranch in, man, they're so far below the national average. This isn't a deal you get into to, to get wealthy. So, yeah, it'd be a terrible, devastating deal. You know, I mean, <laughs> you know, you try to figure out what, what can you do? I mean, how do you prevent this stuff? I mean, what's, what, 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 what can you do as a rancher? What can your, what can your colleagues do? What can the consumers do? I mean, what, what, you know, where do we go? Because I, I am, I am looking at, I'm fairly pessimistic and looking at the writing on the wall and not ha look happy with what I'm seeing. And so I'm, I'm trying to do what I can to, to try to, you know, make a change, but I think it's going to take a lot of effort and a lot of people to do this. So where do we start? Well, I think a couple of things is number one, we've got to be, you, you looped into it, the National Cattlemen's Association. We've, we've got to get our big agent, our big organizations, wake up, start battling for us. The other thing is supporting guys like you that are carrying the flag for carnivore. It makes a big difference. And there's some, you guys are great voices out there. And I think we've got to 
get more behind you. Guys, these guys are great voices. The other thing is ranchers aren't real good on social media. They've got to get on social media. They've got to get out there and don't worry about what your tweet looks like or if you spell something right, just tweet the truth. And you've got to support the Dr. Sarah Places and Frank and, and Peter Ballastad. You've got to support these guys that are really uh, fighting for us. Um, I think another thing is that I'm pretty pumped about is, and this gets down to the social part of uh, – of uh, sustainability, the new farm bill. You know, they we just passed the new farm bill, the 2018 farm bill. And Sean, you know, that's the farm bill's done every five years. And then so you don't do it every year, you just pass it every five years. And for the first time, we're seeing some, some, uh, some sustainability dollars in that farm bill. And so I think that's going to be a real positive deal. And so we've got to be petitioning our politicians. Guys, help us out here. Help us out. Get, let's change some of the narrative here and let's get it to more sustainable. The consumers right now want sustainability. And this is kind of an interesting deal. If you ask anybody, what does sustainability mean? You can't get a good answer. But yet, if I say that my product is from a ranch that's sustainable, 82% of the consumers will go, I like your product even before they taste it. So we've got to start moving to that, and I think that'll get the consumers in our camp too. Let me just, you know, because that's, that's an interesting point because, you know, and people like Sarah Place, when we had her on, we talk about, when we talk about sustainability, everybody, you know, tries to, to, to distill it down to carbon footprint, but it's more than that. And, and, and you can talk about what is it, you know, what is sustainability, you know, to you? And it's not just how much, how much carbon am I emitting? How much methane am I emitting? How much am I sequestering? It is an entire ecology. Can you talk, yeah. you know, again, a little bit more about what that means to, to us in general? Yeah. So, you know, number one, sustainability means that the goal of sustainability is whatever I do today, I'm going to produce food today. And I don't want to do anything that's comp going to compromise what future generations are going to be able to produce. So when I do this, it, in, in anybody looking at sustainability with that goal, they look at it in three different objectives or three different lens. So you've got the environmental, you know, the soil, the water, the air. Uh, then you've got in the, in the animals and the grasses. So that whole deal, how can I improve that? You also have the economic. So the deal's got to be sustainable economic. I can't do this because I just want to do it. I've got to make it make sense. And then you also have the social aspect of it. And so... I think over, you know, for the last 50 years, we've been driven by yield out in agriculture. Hey, I got to produce more. I need to produce more cattle. And all of a sudden we're realizing, you know what, that's not that good of a deal. I need to be more sustainable so that I have something for the next generation. So what we're trying to do now is if I can put in less inputs, if I can use less chemicals, if I can do less, uh, if I can improve my soils, water, air, those are all resources that are real good. But the same token, economically, I've got to make this work. And I'll tell you a prime example on that is, so carcass weight has been going up over the last 30 years. I'm able to, cows are getting bigger, chickens and all that. Well, that is an economical advantage as a rancher because then I take one cow, I process it, it's less cost for me. But Sean, consumers, my consumers, since I sell direct, my consumers are going, Bart, I don't want a two pound steak. You may, Sean, but but a lot of my, particularly my female customers, and we want more females eating red meat, they're going, Bart, I want a five-ounce filet, and I'd like a bone-in ribeye of about eight, eight to maybe uh, eight ounces to maybe 10 ounces. 
But if I get these bigger cows, they, they, they produce bigger pieces of meat, steak on a ribeye. So what we've got to do is, on the, on the past, I've just been about yield. Now I've got to say, you know what, I'm listening to consumers. And I've got to make, I've got to balance that deal. There's a lot of stakeholders in this, in this arena. And so uh, I've got to listen to that. And then the, you know, the social part of it, as what we've got to do is we, we, right now, if you look what's going on between the urban and the rural, we've devastated a lot of the rural communities. You go out in the country right now, and there's a lot of these little downtowns that are dead. Uh, school districts are ba basically able to even support it. There, there's no infrastructure out there. Sean, in the two counties that we ranch, the average age of ranchers is 62 years old. So the issue becomes is, and I'm, I'm 63, so in the next couple of years, we're going to all be retiring. But there's no young people that want to come in. There's no infrastructure out there. So what we've got to do is we've got to look at all the sustainability issue that Dr. Sarah Place was bringing up in the context or lens of not only environmental, but social. We've got to be sure that these rural communities, we're not killing them or we can't get anybody to go do anything in there. They're not going to ranch. And then we've also got to look at, in regards to the economic, it's got, it's got to make economic sense. So those are the three things that are going on right now. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of push and pull. A lot of times what happens is the person with the loudest voice is who you hear. And a lot of that is environmental, but these other two voices are just as important. Yeah, I mean, it's well said. You know, I think one of the things that kind of interested me, we're talking about big cattle, you know, I, I saw that, you know, when you get it to the processor, the hanging weight's above 1,050 pounds, they dock you. So you can't, you can't grow them too big or, you, you know, or, or, they, or, the, or, the, or the processors can't handle them. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, you, and you're right, a guy like me, man, you bring me a damn three-pound ribeye and I'm a happy man. But you know, maybe, maybe <laughs> yeah, there'll be some special, yeah, special answers. Like a big old tomahawk ribeye. Yeah, I hear right. you that's, that's nice, it's kind of lapping over your plate. But, uh, yeah, the consumers want a little bit something. And so, we're, you know, we're trying to figure that out. And we really want more women to start eating ruminant meat. Yeah, I think that's essential for women. Let me ask you about, um, uh, you know, one of the concern, one of the thoughts is, you know, we've got these animals that are finished out on grain and they got this really nice marbling. And one of the knocks against, you know, for the people that enjoy that. So how do you – how do you get that? I mean, you just keep on grass longer. I guess you got to, you got to finish them out at, you know, 26 months or, or, or perhaps even longer if, if that's a product you look for. How do you, how do you manage that on grass? Yeah, good, good question. And, and this is a little bit of something on the consumers. You know, I think you had maybe Frank on, on y'all's great episode. He had mentioned that right now in regards to feedlot, uh, they're taking cows to feed or they're processing out of the feedlot. They've got them enough fat. They're big enough. They've got enough fat at 14 to 16 months. And for me to get that same level of trim fat and marbling, I've got to keep them on grass, Sean, uh, anywhere from 22 to 28 months. And my sweet spot on my grasses, our, right now, quality of my meat is everything. I've got to nail that. It's about 22 to 26 months. And so as a result, I have more labor cost. I've got, you know, there's a lot more touches to that. But here's the deal. I've had a lot of people, and I'm not trying to diss the feedlot, a lot of people, when, when you start, it gets down to that yield. So if I'm, I'm taking cows out of the feedlot at 14 months, a lot of times they just don't have the flavor as a cow that's been on grasses, or, or even if you kept them on grain until they get a little older. And so a lot of my people come in, my, my customers go, Bart, I love the robust flavor, that beefy flavor of your meat. And for me, 
though I've got to be sure that uh, I've got enough trim fat, particularly on my briskets. I've got to be sure I've got enough trim fat. On my steaks, I've got to be sure I've got enough marbling. And the difference of mine is, you know, if you look at a grass-fed, grass-finished, true grass-fed, grass-finished, my fat is yellow. It's not white. So if you looked at usually most feedlot, the fat is about the color of my shirt on it. Well, my fat has a lot of beta carotene. So you can eat every bit of the fat. And I'm, I want everybody to eat meat, no matter what. I don't care if it's feedlot or grass-fed, grass-finished. But if you're looking at a grass-fed, grass-finished, and somebody said it's grass-fed, grass-finished, but it's about the color of my shirt, it probably isn't. And you really want to look at that, that trim fat and that marbling that is yellow, maybe an ochre or an uh, orangey uh, color. It makes a big difference. Hey, does, does a breed of cattle, uh, you know, I'm sure it does, and you know a hell of a lot more about this than I do, but it does, does a breed of cattle for stuff like that, you know, sort of predict which one's going to do better on grain finish versus grass finish and how you, you, you manage that? Can you talk a little bit about that for maybe the, the, the cattle enthusiasts out there that want to talk about particular breeds? Because I think it's just interesting stuff. Yeah. Well, you know what they do is there's, uh, in, in the state of Texas, and I can kind of only speak for this, if you go towards the Gulf Coast from where, you know, Gaveston, where you did a lot of your work and uh, uh, stomping grounds down there, you, you see more of a, uh, a Brahma, okay? They're more heat resistant. So a cattle down there, they're good breeds. Uh, Nolan Ryan uses Beefmaster. And Beefmaster is actually a combination of like, I think it's the only re- one of the few registered U.S. breeds, certified breeds, but it's got Brahma in it. Uh, it's got a couple of other things, but they're heat resistant, okay? Right now, the, you go further north and it's an English breed like, a, like an Angus. And Sean, you go to the grocery store now, everybody wants black. Everybody wants black Angus organic beef, black Angus grass-fed beef, black Angus pasture-raised beef. So the market right now, for whatever reason, is saying, we want black Angus. You know, God, back when you were probably back in Texas, Hereford was a big breed. And we kind of done a pushback on that. Each of those breeds have certain qualities. And what most ranchers do, like me, is I'm sitting there looking at my herd. And the constantly, I want to improve my overall herd characteristics, okay? I, I kind of give a body score to my whole herd. And, and I may do, well, Dick Gummin, I need to bring in a Black Angus bull to give a little bit better marbling. And these bulls throw off a really big uh, calf size. And if I throw off a bigger calf size, usually that, that means my calves are going to uh, survive. I'll have a lot better, uh, less chance that I'm going to have a, a calf that dies. So I may breed for that. And I may bring in the, the Harford because they, they're good milkers. They, they, they're really good mamas. They're a little more docile. So you breed for all these deals. I don't, I don't, I don't know that you can say that once more, one breeds better at grass-fed, grass-finished versus uh, feedlot. But we all, all cattlemen are trying to breed to our herd and, and bring in that hybrid vigor that you get from these different uh, breeds. And each one has some unique characteristics. Jay, you actually highlighted something I was meaning to ask you about because uh, I remember um, when I was in high school, I had a buddy who he grew up on a family dairy farm and we were getting, it was like our senior year of high school and, and uh, he had told me that he was going to go to college for, I think it was at least a year to take like some, some farming certification stuff. And I remember thinking, well, why would you do that? You've literally lived on this farm your entire life. You know how to do it. You've worked there pretty much since you could. 
Um, what, what's the point? It's your family owns it. You're going to inherit it. What's the point of going there and getting that? And he said, well, you know, we, we sell this, this milk to the distributors and they won't buy it from us if I don't have this like level of education. And I think sometimes people think like, you know, farming is a generational thing where it gets passed down and there's not an education process in it. It's a learn by doing, uh, but, you know, talking to you and talking to other farmers, it's, it's, it becomes kind of clear that there's, there's a huge education component to it, especially if you want it to be sustainable long term, if you want to be able to pass something down to your kids or whoever takes on next in a, in a meaningful way. Um, you, you, can you share with us anything about that? Like, what is the education process like for someone who wants to get into cattle raising or dairy farming or something like that? Boy, that's really a great question, Zach. And so you've got all these ranchers, maybe third, fourth generation ranchers. Man, they know the art of it. And it's passed down generation to generation. But during this whole time, there's so many great innovations and improvements in, in ranching and how we animal welfare, animal husbandry. And so what you've got to do is you've got to be constantly educating yourself to find out how can I improve my what I do, my processes. In the same token, something you hit on, a lot of times who you're selling to, they're requiring them. And so one that, uh, that again, Dr. Sarah Place had mentioned in your program was the Beef Quality Assurance Program. And so, like I said, I went and got certified in both of those. I use that as a banner, and people like that. We're seeing more and more people going, Bart, tell me about some of your certifications. Same thing with when I decided to go and get my USDA uh, grass-fed, grass-finish certification. People want to know I've got that. They want to know the number. They want to go look up my ranch on the USDA's uh, website. And so we're constantly having to do that. And then there's so many great resources, uh, Texas A&M, TCU. Uh, a lot of these other schools are putting out great programs that we go and we find out what's going on. One I mentioned earlier up in uh, Oklahoma is the Noble Foundation. The Noble Foundation is a nonprofit they are the perennial experts on grasses. So, you know, any good cattleman, you may have heard this, Zach, uh, any good cattleman is a good grassman. You've got to be a good grassman to be a cattleman because all we're really doing is I'm taking my grasses and through my cattle, I'm converting it to dollars. And so if I'm not a good grassman, my cattle can be good and it's not going to be good. So the Noble Foundation, I've gone up there and taken classes up there and you've got to constantly be educating. And then what you do is you kind of marry the art and the science of this. You marry the art and the science, and you're going to have a lot better product, and customers want it more. And I think that's what the consumers want, and that's what we're having to do. All ranchers are doing this. Bar, what does a day, what, what's a typical day look like for you? I mean, tell, tell us about, what, you know, or just over the years or, you know, what you do these days. Just give me an idea what, what ranching is like. Yeah. Well, a couple of different deals. When I'm out at the ranch, and Sean, I want to be clear about this, I'm back and forth. Our provision house is in town. Our ranch is 50 miles out. When I'm out at the ranch, it depends on the season. So right now, uh, we're basically doing a lot of repair. We're looking at all of our equipment. It's kind of a quiet time at the ranch. Uh, we're calving. So each day we go out there, our, our mama cows are throwing out calves. So we'll drive around to see if any of them are having a problem, uh, see where they are, kind of counting our numbers and whatnot. We're also looking at all of our equipment, repairing it or getting it repaired. We're also going around looking at our fences. Uh, we're constantly looking at our grasses. So right now, we've got our winter grasses coming in. So I'm rotationally moving our cattle. And I don't do this with electrical wires. Some of the guys will do electrical wires to move their cattle. 
we've got most of our padlocks, we've got fences. So we'll go out there and look at our grasses. And if our cattle, which are on our winter grasses right now, have got it down to about four to six inches, we move them off that and close that field up, move them to another field. And so we're doing that. We're also looking at the health of our cattle. But right now is a good time too. If we've got any mamas or bulls that we need to potentially call and just sell at the auction, it's a good time to consider doing that. Now, after our cows are, after our, our with calves, then in, uh, then in May, we usually work our calves. And so what we like to do is, and this is a labor saving deal, we take all of our calves at one time and we'll put them through the pens. We put them into a calf cradle. Uh, usually what you do on a big cow, you put them in a squeeze chute. And then from there, you will do whatever you need to do to a, a full-grown cow. But a calf, you put them into a calf cradle and it kind of defines them like this, confines them. You turn it on its side, and then if it's a bull cow, calf, then you castrate. You will worm them. Uh, you will uh, do any other type of treatment. You look at them, and you work those calves. And what we usually do there is, you know, that, that takes a couple of cowboys, all of us getting out there working. I think it would be a really good deal if you and Sean would come out and work. I think you would really enjoy it. It would be a lot of fun. And you might even have to eat some of those uh, – uh, those uh, mountain oysters, we like to call them. We do fry those up and eat them. Uh, <laughs> during the summer, we are, unlike a lot of other ones, we ranch and we also farm, Sean. So what we're doing is, when I say farm, we're planting all of our grasses. And I don't buy hay. So between when my summer grasses come up and my winter grasses is up or up, between those two periods, I'm putting hay out to feed my cattle. And I only put hay that I bale. So we're baling the whole time. So we're out there on a tractor baling uh, or, or, or uh, putting grass seed in there. And so we're, something's always going on. And uh, what we'll be doing pretty soon is we'll be looking at our soils, getting them ready, conditioning them, looking if we need to do anything. And then we'll start planning, uh, getting ready for, for summer. And then the whole time, like today, I'm here doing this, but Kevin, my, my uh, works on the ranch, He's hauling two cows down to our processor. So we had to load them up, and loading them up is, is a pretty tough deal too. So we loaded up two cows to take into processor. And then that takes 25 days from the time that we deliver it to process and pick it up. So constant moving parts, checking weather, looking at weather conditions, wringing our hands a lot. We're all driven by the weather on the ranch. So we're always looking at When's the rain coming in? We've got to plant up, put our grasses in before that rain comes. So a lot of that goes on all the time. You guys need to come out there. Yeah, yeah, sounds, just sounds, say. Like, yeah sounds like it might be an opportunity for a mobile HPO on yeah. the road. I'd love to. Dude, tell you gotta, I think this could be really something right here. This could be really good. No, yeah, I, my, I agree. Well, hey, let me, because uh, we, 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 we've kept you pretty long and, and I got to do another podcast, unfortunately. But um, let me ask you, for people that want to, Get a hold of some of that damn delicious meat you're producing. Let us know how they can do that, where, where they can find you. Uh, you know, just let the folks know about that. So, so you know, maybe maybe they're local in Texas. I don't know if you have any plans to ship nationwide, but at least for the folks in Texas, how do they how do they get a hold of some of that good old, you know, meat you guys are producing? Well, Sean, thank you for asking. I really appreciate the plug. Uh, number one, you can – we're on uh, the Internet. Uh, you, can, you can pull up the ranch – at 2S, the number two, 2SRanch.com. And uh, so you can get on the ranch from there. You can go straight to our ranch store fulfillment center. It's called the Provision House. 
And so, or you can go straight to the provision house and it is theprovisionhouse.com. And uh, we, we do ship out throughout the United States. We have people buying our beef throughout the United States. You know, shipping on our shipping, our shipping is free. You can look at our different boxes that we do ship. And so you can modify and customize those a little bit, but somewhat they're standard. So you can go on theprovisionhouse.com and you can see all of the beef products. Uh, the thing I'm going to tell you that is we're ranchers. We're ranchers. So we are totally, you may look on there and you say, God dang, they're out of steaks. Well, it's all driven by when we take our cattle and pick them up. So the whole time, it just varies the whole time what's available. But, uh, and you can look at everything about the ranch on 2sranch.com. If you say, you know what, I just want to see what Bart's doing and what they're doing with their cattle, go on to 2sranch.com and look at the ranch. You can go straight into the provision house from there. You'll see at the top, the provision house. I am on Twitter under Simmons Bart. So you can pull me up on Twitter. I, I do a lot of social media to, in regards to, to push ruminant meat. Uh, the, the ranch and the provision house on Twitter, they just don't have a lot of following. So, uh, but man, it, would love to talk to anybody. Anybody's more, anybody that wants to call or talk that you, the numbers on there, when you call us, you're going to actually be talking to a rancher. You're not going to be talking to an order taker. You'll pick up somebody, when you call our number, somebody at the ranch or the provision house. We are a family-owned business. You'll talk to me, my son, my wife, or one of my employees. Yeah, Bart, we'll link, we'll link to the website on the show notes. And uh, yeah, I've actually just flipped over to it real quick now. And a lot of the links you mentioned are right off of that one. So it's a good kind of launching pad for anyone who's interested in checking out more about what you're doing. And um, like Sean mentioned, uh, yeah, we should come down there and do a, do a mobile episode. My wife has actually lived in Dallas for about 10 years. So we get there from time to time. So I think hey, uh, that could be a homecoming. You got to do yeah. it. <laughs> Let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, come on down. We'll have a good time at the ranch. Do it. Like I said, man, we'll welcome you. It'd be great. Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm, I'm down with that, man. Anytime, you know, you know, if there's some steak potential for some steak in that, in that deal, man, I'm, I'm there, dude. Dude, we'll, we'll do a good barbecue. I will do your ride. I tell you, I'll feed those cannons right there on you. I will give you some good U.S. steaks. You will. It'll be a good deal. All right, yeah. good deal. Well, I bet it's been awesome. I, I really love this stuff. This is good stuff, and I and I, and I hope you know people listening to this are going to get get as much out of it that I did. And and uh, thanks for coming on. And 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 serious, we'd love to love to hook up with you and 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 you know that sort of stuff. So Zach, anything else before we shut it down? Um, I think I think that's it. This was great. It's uh, it's always great to hear it right from the field, uh, literally um, from the from the folks. I know we've had our our Sarah Place and uh, Professor Frank Mitloner episodes were really popular. We're gonna roll one out um, that deals with some sustainable farming as well to kind of right before this one too uh, with Diana Rogers. So I think we're starting to gather some good good public awareness and kind of what's actually going on in the majority of these places. And, you know, people don't have to go to YouTube and, and watch horror, horror scenarios. They can see other sides of it too, which I think will be good. Um, but yeah, other than that, thanks for coming on, Bart. It was great to have you here. Hey man, it, I really enjoyed the heck out of this. It was a real honor to be on y'all's podcast. Thank you a whole bunch. All right. Take care. Hey, we'll see you guys. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.